Chris uh, just finished uh, or just completed three out of four parts to his Listening in Prayer in Bounds series, tremendous series. And there's a fourth one that he wanted to add now. And, uh, and so we're going to have him do that, but, I, but we're interrupting it with this series because th- those messages can stand alone. I've got three weeks and then I've got to be gone for two weeks. And so uh, what I'm dealing with here, I can't, uh, I can't split, split up. Because we're dealing with a very um, a challenging topic, a, v- a very interesting uh, topic, an intriguing topic, uh, one that will uh, catch your attention. And uh, it's on gender roles in marriage and ministry. How's that? And I've been here for 15 years, and, and, um, and some of you may be wondering if I value my life at all, <laughs> taking on this topic, but I'm very excited about it, actually. And I believe God has something very interesting in store for us and some things to teach us that are countercultural, not just countercultural in, uh, in our society, but countercultural cu- even in the church. And, uh, but I think that what I'm going to show you and demonstrate to you out of the scriptures, uh, I will teach to you in the context of a 37 year successful marriage, mine and friends. <laughs> there was two of us in this one. <laughs> <laughs> now, for those of you that are new here, you may think that a statement like that's a boastful statement. It isn't at all. I've often said that if it wasn't for Christ, and I mean that literally, uh, in, in a very direct way, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't, we wouldn't have had a successful 37-year marriage. But uh, there's something else I want to say about that. I'm actually very transparent, as, as all the rest of the church knows, with areas where I haven't done so well, and I've told you that. And you'll even hear little uh, pokes. I'll make it myself in this particular message as well. But uh, it is true that uh, one, of the, one of the tremendous successes God has given us, and it's a gift from Him, is in the way He has led us and directed us to come up with a marriage that has been this good, this successful, a bit of heaven here on earth. And I believe it's because of something, some things that we were learning and particular because way back in our 20s, we started listening in prayer. And you're going you're gonna to see how that factors in here. And boy, that can change and transform your life. And it can change and transform your marriage too. So we're going to get into it right away. I can't, uh, the first two weeks, I'm going to deal with gender roles in marriage. Uh, I would have liked to get it all done this weekend, but there's just not enough time. And so I, I'm, I'm putting some of it off. So if there, if there are any questions that will be coming up in your head, yeah, but you haven't dealt with this part here or that, just hang on. We're getting to it next weekend. And then the third weekend, then I'm going to talk about uh, gender roles in ministry. And I'm very excited about this one as well. So let's uh, bow for With all that, let's uh, bow for a word of prayer. We need His help to hear this morning. We need the Spirit's help to hear and to see what He has for us. Holy Spirit, we really do need your help as we uh, recognize that in our culture, marriages are shot. They're in real deep trouble. And uh, it's because somewhere we got off the rails. We got off the original design that was in Genesis. And, uh, and so we're asking you now, Holy Spirit, to show us, to guide us, on this path that leads back to oneness and wholeness. And as we sang about you're making everything new, we're asking you to make our marriages new uh, so that we might be a light to this culture around us that's dying. 
and uh, that we can point them forward in a new way, in a new direction, that we can salvage marriages in the church and in this community, in this region. And so we're asking for your help in this. We say to you that we submit to your word this morning, and we submit to you, Holy Spirit, and uh, we ask you to open our spiritual eyes and understanding, and we submit to whatever you have for us. In Jesus' name, and everybody agreed by saying, Amen. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 is where it all started. And it says, in a very familiar passage that you will yawn through, because if you've been to enough weddings, you've heard it said many times before. And so that's always the problem with hearing certain passages too many times, so many times. All right, in Genesis 2.24 it says, A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become what? One flesh, oneness, one flesh in a union and a relationship unlike any other relationship that you will have on this planet. And unfortunately, at the fall, that oneness in marriage was broken. In Genesis 3.16, it says, Then he said to the woman, this is the curse that is being, I'm just quoting from the curse that came upon the man and the woman and upon this planet after they fell, after they sinned intentionally in the garden. Then a curse came on them, and this is a piece of it that uh, pertains to what we're talking about. And uh, God said to the woman, And you will desire to control your husband... But he will rule over you, and the battle of the sexes was born. And uh, there we see brokenness. So in creation, it was a good thing, and we see oneness. And in the fall, we see brokenness, and it was not a good thing at all. There's been a fight for control and domination in marriage ever since. But Jesus came to heal the cause of brokenness, and then to point us Uh, to the way back to oneness in marriage. First of all, uh, I want to talk to you, uh, there's two key things I want to talk to you about, and I want to begin by saying that today we vacillate between two extremes, dominant patriarchalism and independent feminism on the other extreme. Okay, those two. Now you say, what do you mean by uh, dominant patriarchalism? What I mean by that, patriarch is father, matriarch is mother, uh, husband, wife, And dominant patriarchy is where the male rules in the relationship. He dominates and he rules. And for, uh, for millennia now, that is what we've seen since the fall. And in fact, we, though in the West, we're now seeing something different. And on the opposite extreme, opposite extreme to your left, is independent feminism. We've had in the West this reaction, it was a reactive force to this this extreme dominance of the male in the marriage and uh, and rulership. And the and the reaction went over, way over to the other side, to another extreme, which we call independent feminism, where the woman and the wife says, I don't need you anymore, all restraints are off, all, uh, all chains are, are off, all caution through, uh, thrown to the wind, I, I, I don't want to, um, uh, I, I, don't, I don't need a man, don't want a man, I just want to be a man. And now we've got unisex being born. And, uh, and so you've got these two competing extremes that are running. Now, that's where, that's where we'll begin. Both of these extremes lead the husband and wife on a trajectory 
away from one another toward brokenness, exactly what we just read in Genesis 3.16. And in order to achieve oneness, both husband and wife need to move back to the middle where they will achieve the oneness of the Garden of Eden. But how do you get back to the middle is the question. Ephesians chapter 5 is the context in which we're going to be uh, discussing this, though we will uh, borrow from other passages as well. Next week we're going to go to some other passages, but for today we're going to stay in uh, the context will be Ephesians 5. And Ephesians 5 reveals two requirements by which the husband and wife may move to the middle where they will meet and join in oneness or one flesh. And the first one uh, that we see uh, on the diagram is that we're to submit to God. And I want to I show you how this works. And some of you have seen the triangle, of course, if you've got the man on the one side, let's say patriarch, and, and you've got the woman on the other side, and if you've got God on top and he's Lord of your life, then as you move towards him, you move towards the middle. You see that? Now, let's describe how, how that looks. What does that look like? Now, unfortunately, and we see it actually described in Scripture in Ephesians chapter 5. However, there's something unfortunate about what I'm going to tell you because, first of all, I've noticed in all my reading of gender role books and marriage books that most of them rush to the hot-button verses beginning in verse 22, and the hot-button verse there is, Wives what? Submit, yeah, I'm glad you got that firmly in yourself. And that's where they all rush. Then there are a few that start one verse earlier where it has the participial phrase, and we're going to look at that in just a minute, submitting to one another, but I have found no gender role books and I've found no marriage books that start in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18. Most of them in verse 22, a few in verse 21, and none in verse 18. And yet I believe that's exactly where you have to start. And this is what, it, uh, what it's going to say. It's going to start by saying it's going to give us an imperative command, uh, a command of something that we're supposed to do, the imperative verb, which is going to say be filled with the Spirit. And we're going to read this in just a second. And then I'm going to want you to notice what we read after that. You're going to see... Four participial phrases that follow describing the effects of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to comment on that, okay? So here we go. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be, help me that with that one. Filled with the Spirit. And here's number one, participial phrase number one. Addre- addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the evidences of that, one of the effects of that is that you're going to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Number two, singing and making melody in, in the, uh, 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 to the Lord with your heart. Number three, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then take a look at number four, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then it goes on to that famous verse, hot button verse that we all know, wives submit, and that's in brackets, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. One of the effects of being filled with the Holy Spirit is that you'll submit to one another. Now, one of the things I've noticed over the years is that when people talk about being filled with the Spirit, one of the first things that they point to, one of the evidences of being filled with the Spirit, is that you speak in tongues, and that may be an evidence But the point is, here he's showing us some evidences that people never point to. 
And one of them is that you will submit to one another. And in this context, we know he's talking about marriage. That's what we're talking about, this whole passage there. So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, we see, uh, we see uh, and understand, we get an understanding of that in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, where it says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, and this is that right after his water baptism, the Holy Spirit came down on him as a dove. It said, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was, uh, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert. Whatever else it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and it means other things like being empowered and so on, and we're not going there, but whatever else it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, one thing is absolutely certain. You will be submitted to and led by the Spirit. You can't be led by the Spirit or by God if you are not submitted to God. True? So we need to be submitted to God. And an evidence of that... Uh, evidence of filling of the Holy Spirit is that we will submit to God. Now, when we submit to God, it means that He is leading us and He can only lead us if we can hear Him. And that, hence the series that we've just been in again on listening prayer. It's very, very important that we, we are hearing God. And He speaks to us in many, many different ways. Um, uh, but it's important. Now, certainly in a marriage... It is important that each of the spouses, each individual in a marriage, hears God on their own. Absolutely essential. Uh, and and uh, there are many songs that talk, uh, talk about it, the scriptures talk about it. We're supposed to, so you're supposed to have your devotional time, you're supposed to read the word, and you're supposed to pray alone by yourself. But here is the greatest mistake that, people are make, that couples are making. It is perfectly right to do that. And Fran and I do that every morning. Uh, I go alone by myself and she goes alone by herself. And we read and we pray and we do all of that. But this is what you've got to do after that. This is, this is the sin of omission in a marriage. If you're going to get this thing of submitting to God, then you have to compare notes after you have been apart. So, for example, this morning, I was, uh, I was back here early. I was fine-tuning the message. I was just trying to get as much clarity as I could. And, and I was working at it. Oh, it's the phone rings. I look. Oh, it's Fran. I pick up the phone. Hey, honey, is it okay if I... This has nothing to do with what you're doing, but do you mind if I just tell you what, what I just got this morning? And I said, yeah. She said, this is amazing. This is what you and I are talking about, and I'll talk about it a little bit more later in the message. But the, my point is, now you compare notes. You don't just do this all by yourself in isolation. Here's the second thing that you have to do if you're going to hear God uh, correctly. Not only do you compare the notes of what you got separately and individually and by yourself, you actually need times when you listen together. And for Fran and I, the chief time when we do that is Mondays on our day off, usually in the afternoon after we get back from the, from the restaurant where we've been. <laughs> and so tomorrow... Uh, morning, uh, because of some big decisions that we have to make again, uh, we I, I have to. We both have some meetings in uh, out west uh, for two days, and we'll be back. But uh, so we will be doing some listening on the plane on the trip there. And we've already talked about it. Man, we can hardly wait because there's some things we got to listen and find out from God what He wants us to do. And many couples are missing that part. 
It's good if you're, if you're reading the scriptures and you're praying and you're journaling and you're doing all of that, but you've got to compare notes and you've got to actually listen together. Very critical, and I'll tell you why. Here's the reason. Husbands and wives, and particularly husbands now, I want to say this, but it includes wives. God will not reveal everything to you alone. Did you get that? Church, did you get it? He will not reveal everything to you alone. In fact, this principle is for all leadership. This works in every area of leadership. God will show much to you, but he will not show everything to you. And I'm going to give you a, an example of that. In the book of Judges, chapter 13 is a fascinating story. It's actually a little bit funny. It's a little humorous, and I'm going to let you in on the story. There was a man by the name of Manoah, and he had a wife. No name given in the scripture. There's just Manoah and his nameless wife. She was barren and had no children. And so one day the angel of the Lord came to this nameless wife and spoke to her. And the angel of the Lord, actually is a Christophany, it's Christ, appearing in the Old Testament, appears to the woman and says, not only are you going to have a son, I'm going to give you a son who is going to be the leader of Israel. In other words, like the prime minister of Canada or the president of the U.S. or something like that. And uh, she's amazed. <laughs> she's heard this from God, and she gets a message from God. She goes to her husband, Manoah, and she tells him. Manoah does the next right thing. He prays, and he says, Oh, God, if you're going to give us the next leader of Israel, then we need to know how, how do you raise up such a person. Surely that can't be just average raising. I mean, you got to do something different. So we need wisdom. We need insight. We need you to come and talk. Wasn't that a good thing of him to do, to pray and ask God that? And God looked at him and said, Manoah, that is a very good idea. In fact, it says, I want you to read the verse. It says, God listened to the voice of Manoah. Isn't that good? And I want you to see what God does next. How did he listen? And the angel of God came again to the... Nameless woman. Manoah prays and says, God, come back and talk to us, specifically me. And God says, good idea, Manoah. And he goes to the woman and talks to her. As she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. I think that's a very humorous story. Talk about countercultural. The woman is nothing in that society, in that culture. She's not even named. And God says, I'll talk to her about this important thing. And you, if you want to know anything about it, you're going to have to talk to her. <laughs> I like that, don't you? How many of you women are enjoying the story so far? Yeah. How many of you men are enjoying it? Uh, not so many. <laughs> 
Well, that's what happened. And by the way, uh, let me just, uh, just a quick aside. You know, sometimes I hear people using this argument. They say, well, you know, uh, in the, gar- uh, the man obviously has this huge supremacy. He, he must be the real chieftain because in the Garden of Eden, God spoke to Adam before he spoke to Eve. And therefore, she must be naive and not, you know, and that's why she, uh, she sinned and all of that. But uh, Adam was the one he was taught, and so he's the chieftain. Here... God turns that whole argument, overturns that, and he talks to woman first. But anyway, that's not my whole point. I just wanted to throw that one out there for free. But the point is that he, sp- he, doesn't, he will not just speak to you. He will speak to your spouse. And uh, I remember, I, I've, had, I've got many instances that I could point to in my own life, but I remember one time we, we were dealing with a rebellious child, a teenager this many years ago. And... Uh, Fran felt that God was saying, back off, and don't, don't exert more pressure on this teenager now. Uh, I, on the other hand, thought that the tough love approach would be the right approach. Now, is tough love a good uh, strategy at times, yes or no? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so in this particular case, there was a stalemate of what was the best solution. Do we back off? Do we practice Tough love. And so uh, as, uh, as we would have it, and, uh, I was praying. I said, God, I, you know, and that was one of the toughest things that we ever faced in our marriage, uh, uh, Fran and I. Uh, we've had other challenges, but in terms of where we completely disagreed on how to handle a thing. In fact, it got, at one point, I remember sitting down with her and saying, Fran, uh, let's get some perspective on this. Do you know that we're actually on the same team? She said, we are? I said, yes. We both want what's best for our teenager, do we not? And she said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, we do. I said, the only thing we don't agree on is how we're going to get there. And so, anyway, I went to prayer, and, and wouldn't you know it, I was on a trip from Toronto to Montreal, and that night I had a young man with me in the, in the vehicle, 22 years old. He was married, had one child, and he had been a rebellious teen. And we got to talking about his past. And, and I said to him, I said, so, um, uh, I, you know, I had this question because what I was going through, and I said, you were rebellious. Now, how did your father and mother handle it? And he said, well, they, they t- you know, the tough love approach. And I said, oh, well, that, I'm curious to know how you responded to that, and what you think would have helped you more, to back off, if they had backed off more, or the tough love. Which one helped you more? He said, well, I take ownership for what I did. I rebelled. And I said, I know, I know, but is there anything they could have done different that would have helped you? Yeah, he said, if they would have backed off, I think it would have helped. I said, oh, great. And right there, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And when I got to the motel in Montreal, I picked up the phone and I I phoned Fran and I said, you're right. You're absolutely right. You heard it right. I was wrong. And I said, and that's what we're going to do. And that was the approach that we took after that. And it was the right one. Sometimes God shows the man first, as with Adam, sometimes the woman. You know why, and you know why he won't show you everything alone? If you, it'll force you to listen to each other and with each other. And then you, or you'll have a disaster. That's the other alternative. But if you don't want a disaster, it'll force you to do that. And then you'll end up on the same page together, and it won't matter who got the idea or who heard God first. Amen? Who cares? 
who got the first thought and the first idea and who he spoke to first. The point is, God led. True? That's all that matters. So the point is that you've received God's will and direction for your marriage and home, and that's all that matters. And when you end up on the same page, it creates oneness, one flesh. Back to the Genesis thing, right? There's a second thing that's needed for growing in oneness or one flesh, and uh, that is submission to each other. Now, this is where it gets a little interesting because this is a little countercultural to what the ch even the church has been teaching in recent decades. But I want to show you what the scriptures say. There are four th reasons that we know that husbands and wives are to submit to each other. And the first reason is the text actually says it. Let's read it. Submitting to one another. What does submitting one to another mean? I know. Submitting one to another. <laughs> True. Out of reverence for Christ, wives, be subject, that's in brackets, we'll get to that, to your own husbands. All right? Now, contrary to what most Bibles say, verse 22, you know the part about wives, submit, doesn't actually supply its own verb the verb submit or be subject, but borrows it from verse 21, the participial phrase submitting one to another. So uh, the NASB or the North American Standard Bible, that one actually puts it in italics and you can see that that verb isn't there. So the way it actually reads is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands, and then you would expect what? Yeah, exactly. And husbands somewhere, da 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 Right? That's what, it, that's what it's saying. So it's linking, it's linking it to that submit to, uh, submitting to one another, wives to the husbands, and sure enough, then something is going to come. And that's what we're going to see in the next point. The uh, that's exactly what we find. The structure also says it. Paul first points to the wife's part of mutual submission, expands on it for a couple of verses. So verse 22, 3 and 24, it says, wives, you're supposed to submit, and here's the reason why, da da And then it puts it in a little thing like that. And then it says, and now, and then he speaks to the husbands, and husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and died for her. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. That's a part of submitting. It's under that participial phrase. And then in verse 33, he's got this grand summary in a succinct statement. And let's see how it looks. Ephesians 5.22 and the NLT, the New Living Translation, actually captures the, what's going on here better than any of the other translations. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For husbands, and you know, and then there's those verses. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave his, his life for her. And from verse 25 to 32, you've got this long description about what this means for the husbands. And we'll see why that is so in just a minute. In Ephesians 5.33, at the end of this pericope, at the end of this whole section, just before Ephesians 6, then he comes up with his grand summary statement, his conclusion, and he summarizes it by saying it, So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And this is just another restatement of how they are to submit one to another. Okay? 
So we see the structure says it. The next thing we know, here's the third reason, the words say it. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, it's very interesting, because the very next verse is in the next chapter, and it says, children what? Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, say, say it, children what? Obey your parents. And then in verse 5 it says, slaves, obey your masters. In both those relationships, it uses the word obey. But if you go back to the relationship between the husband and wife, you do not find that verb there. It's not there. And Paul was a very precise writer, and he was contrasting the mutual submission of a husband-wife relationship that is unlike any other relationship in the whole world. You are to be one Like juice crystals in, a, in, in water, you can't, you can't tell the difference. Not like oil and water, separate. We're to be one. And so he makes that distinction. All right. And then, of course, in the Ephesians passage, you have the one-way submission. Reason number four, other scriptures say it. 1 Corinthians 7 says, The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. I'll stop right there before I read the rest. In other words, you cannot use your bodies, husbands and wives, to manipulate and control your spouse. I'm going to withhold unless I get that. And yes, we're talking about sex right now. Okay, that's what it says. Look what verse 5 says. I think it's verse 5. Yes. Do not deprive each other except by what? Mutual consent. There it is again. Mutuality. Mutual submission to one another. Then take a look at verse Corinthians chapter 11, 11, and we're going to spend a little more time in there next week. But take a look what it says there. Woman is not independent of man, <clears throat> nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, and everything comes from God. I just need a little water break here. All right. So why did Paul tell wives to submit? Why did he say that? I mean, after all, this is a very good question I'm asking. And I'll tell you why it's a good question. Because for millennia, they had already been submitting. They had been held in subjection for millennia. They hadn't been free. It wasn't feminism the way we know it today. No, it was more like you would find in some of the restricted Muslim countries today. That's how it was for millennia. So why is he even telling the woman that? Leave her alone already. Ah, he had a very good reason for telling her. And I'm going to have to lay out the background to be able to do that. And I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, talk, uh, I'm going to quote a Greek philosopher to do it, Aristotle. He was discipled by Plato. Aristotle went uh, and he himself discipled Alexander the Great, the great uh, Greek conqueror who went and conquered the, <clears throat> the known Mediterranean world and all the areas around there at the time and spread Greek thought and ideas all over that place. And those ideas are what influenced 
the culture of the time when Jesus came and spoke to them. It was heavily influencing them, even as it influences us today. But here's what Aristotle, the philosopher who studied in universities to this day, said, and I quote, The female is a monstrosity, a deformed male. Okay. The female sex has a more evil disposition than the male, is more forward and less courageous. Women and the female animals bred by us, males, are evidently so. The males are in every respect opposite to this. Their nature is braver and more honest. The female more cowardly and less honest. The male is superior and the female inferior. The male ruler and the female subject. That was the prevailing thought of the culture of the day. It isn't in the West, but it was in the culture of the day. They, women were simply possessions. They weren't really considered people. Uh, the, and this was the world that Jesus entered and began to turn right side up. For example, he talked to the woman at the well. When you read it and you go, well, yeah, so what's the big deal? <laughs> if, you, if you had been there, you would have realized the ground just shifted when he did that. Talking to a woman? You didn't talk to a woman. They didn't even come out of their houses. Not only that, in another instance, he, uh, we, we, we read that he's teaching Mary. She's sitting at his feet. And learning. That's exactly how students learned from their teachers. But only men and boys could do that. Women could. So it was, it was shocking what he was doing. It was countercultural what he was doing. Mary sat at his, at his feet there and did that. And then there were some leaders. You remember the story in another, in another instance. They brought this woman. She was caught in adultery. And they wanted to, to stone her. Uh, because she had committed, she had been, not only had she committed adultery, she had been caught in the act of adultery. Which tells me something. We're missing a man somewhere here. <laughs> they were ready to stone her, but not the man. And the reason was, in, and by the way, Ephesians is written to Romans, Greco-Romans. And uh, it's in Ephesus. And and uh, they wanted to stone her. Well, it, you know, in, 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 uh, in Greco-Roman society, it was perfectly okay for the husband to have uh, a concubine and a mistress and a wife, but the wife couldn't do that. She had to be chaste. And so Jesus uh, took on that duplicity there, and he protected the woman. And Paul, the apostle Paul, he fired a shot that could be heard around the Mediterranean world when he proclaimed in Galatians chapter 3, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And when he said that, the ground shook. Because the cultures did not believe that at all. The woman was just chattel mortgage. Women and wives were being emancipated from patriarchy and in their newfound freedom, some of them were now swinging to the other extreme of independence from the man. 
Now they weren't going to submit at all. They were just going to do their own thing. They were free from those shackles. Bye-bye. We're out of here. They didn't feel the need to listen to their husbands anymore. But this was a mistake. And the second one I'll deal with next week. But women were in danger of replacing one kind of brokenness caused by patriarchy with another one caused by independent feminism. But, and so that was, the, that was the reason why Paul said, even though they had been under subjection for a long time, now they were just starting to be freed. And he said, oh, oh wives, don't forget, you need to submit in the, in the marriage relationship. But then Paul says the most radical thing. He says, husbands have to submit in this relationship as well. That is absolutely astounding and radical. Incredible. He told them to do it by sacrificing for their wives. That was revolutionary. Love their wives? You've got to be kidding. That's what the new converts to Christianity were saying. Wives were possessions to be used and abused. A woman passed from the guardianship. Let me give you another example. I could read you reams of stuff that I read. A woman was owned by her father. She's a possession. And then when they married, and they got the dowry for that, she belonged to the husband. She raised his kids, and if they had sons, then eventually if her husband died, the sons took possession of their mother. That's sick. Don't you think? I think so. But that's how they thought. Love her? I mean, she was nothing. These men are saying, husbands despised them. And while the husband spent most of the day in, in public in ornate marble buildings in the gymnasium, the respectable wives were most often kept in dark, squalid, and unsanitary, segregated quarters. Love them? Seriously? Sacrifice and serve wives? Paul, you've got to be kidding. Sacrifice and serving is for the woman to do for the man. This was revolutionary. Now, let's talk about that a little bit. What does mutual submission look like? If dominant patriarchy and independent feminism produce brokenness, then what kind of mutual submission produces oneness? And I've come up with a phrase. Complementary mutual submission. So let's unpack it. What do we mean by that? Well, we find that idea in the book of Genesis. Genesis 2.18, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, uh, some use that, you know, that word helper there. Uh, some feel that that word is saying that the husband was greater, the wife was just his little Santa's helper. Good little girl. And he rubs her head. Ha, ha, ha. Good little girl. Fetch. Ha, ha, ha. Good. Ha, ah, you're good. You help me. You're a sweetie. What a good girl. Now I want to ask you a question. When you were a kid and you needed help with a math problem, did you go to someone smarter than you or someone not so smart to help you? Now let that one sink in, huh? Oh, just a little girl, eh? Yeah, a little fetch, huh? 
And when you were having trouble with a bully at school, guys, did you go to someone stronger or weaker to help you? This is precisely what this word is referring to. It's somebody who's strong, that can compliment. A helper is not a subservient peon, but a more capable, more powerful, more intelligent ally. Someone who compliments your weaknesses. True? I mean, you know, God, God was creating on the first day, second day, third day, you know, gets to, and he creates man. And he puts him out there. And, you know, everything else he's created, he says, good. Yep, that's good. Good, good, good. I love it. I speak my word. Oh, it's good. And he makes the man, and he looks at him, and he goes, ooh, boy. <laughs> Not so good. <laughs> There's some pieces missing here. He made them lacking some things. And then he says, so we're going to make a woman man with all the things that he's missing to complement. And together, they're going to be the image of God. Some people think the man carries the image of God and the woman carries the image of God. Wrong. You take the man and the woman and you stick them together and now you have the image of God. Oneness. One flesh. You know, the same word is used in the Old Testament speaking of God. I'm talking about the word helper, helper. For example, Psalm 33, verse 20, it says, We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our what? Ah, that gives us a whole new idea of what a help meet is, isn't it? Doesn't it? God said that he would make, some, uh, make for Adam someone who is suitable for him, someone who would complement his strengths and weaknesses. Why? Because woman was not made just to serve Adam, but to serve with Adam. Yes, she was to serve Adam, and Adam was to serve her. The weaknesses complementing the, uh, the strengths, complementing the weaknesses. But together, they were to rule together. Genesis 1 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness, and let them rule. Let's over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Let them. No, not just the, let the man rule and let her fetch to help him. It's not what it says. Let them rule together. This is a relationship unlike any other relationship in the world. It's an incredible, it's a piece of heaven. Amen? Amen? Yeah, and that's what we've got to demonstrate and model to, the, to a watching culture because this is countercultural. All right, Adam couldn't do it alone. He needed complementary help. God designed it that way in order to produce oneness. Now, how does complementary submission actually work? This is important that you get this now. It is driven by the gifts and abilities that God gives each of us. So... A wife, for example, who is not a, a strong, as strong a leader. Let's say they're in a particular couple relationship. I'm not saying all women. I'm saying a woman who, let's say, does not, because one of the gifts we know is leadership. True? Yes or no? Yes. So let's say she doesn't have a lot of that. She is going to need in that relationship a complement of more leadership. True? Now, 
in my particular relationship with my wife, so on that on that on that uh, 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 scale, it's a it's it, you know it's a riding scale, it's a moving a sliding scale of complementarianism. So one that doesn't have as much. Uh, of the leadership thing is going to need a complement of more of that. That's just one example. Okay, my wife, for example, is somebody who is very strong in leadership. So we've got two of them in one home. Can you imagine that? Yeah, that that can be a problem. And so uh, Fran, because of that, is very helpful to me, and I, she, I, she doesn't need as much of that. So I can back off. She's very helpful to me because in a church this size, she can go in into senior management team meetings, make valuable leader con- contributions to the team, even if I'm not there. Or she can see in the church what needs to be done as a leader and can get it done with, uh, and go to d- different places. She can help me by relieving me of some of that. Okay, and so you see, then it's a little different. So each person is different, and each couple is different based on the abilities and the giftings you have. So you have to, you can't just go black and white and say, the man rules, the wife submits, and that's it. Or the man does this, the woman does this. No, you can't do that. It's way too messy. It's a sliding scale. Here's another example. I am a developer and a creator. I, I... uh, but that's who I am. And it comes out of a certain spiritual gift that I have. And I don't want to talk about that right now. And uh, Fran, on the other hand, doesn't have that ability. However, she has an uncommon amount of wisdom and can often see things that don't work. So I've often, in my 37 years of marriage, heard it won't work. Oh, I hate that phrase. <laughs> She's told me that so many times. And, and a bunch of years ago, I had just had it. I said, you know what? I'm sick and tired of hearing you always say it won't work. I said, don't ever come back to me with it won't work unless you have a solution to the problem and a positive solution. Then you can say it won't work, but this will work. So she didn't come back. And then God spoke to me. He said, you idiot. Me? You idiot. Do you want to try all the ideas? Because I get so many ideas. Do you want to try them all out just to find that some of them and many of them won't work and you'll have spent all that time and energy and resource and all of that? You, don't, you only have one life to live. Do you want to do, learn it the hard way? Or do you want it the shortcut way? It won't work. That's why I gave her to you. Because some of your ideas, they actually suck. <laughs> so, I'm going to save you a lot of energy. I'll just speak through her, and she'll say it won't work. She won't know what will work, but she will know that it won't work. I said, oh, I get it. Complimentary. Yes. Okay. So, I've told her she can say it again. And this is the thing of finances. Uh, you know, guys feel, oh, but I, I won't be a man. Uh, you know, my wife, uh, she worked in bank for years. She was building a career in that. She was really good with the numbers. She was very fast in her mind, not like me at all. And, and, uh, but I felt, man, I was being taught, I got to be a man. So I said, here, give me the books back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do the books. 
And so I was doing it, and it took me three to four times as long. And I could do it, no problem. I could do it. But it took me three to four times as long. And the problem was, I wasn't getting done the things that God was really calling me to do. I, I, I'm, I'm into vision and, and, and making and developing things. And that's where I wanted to be. And finally, one day, I got it. And I said, you know what, complimentary spouse. That's what he gave me. So why am I doing what she's better at? I submit to her strength. Now, you say, oh, so you don't, you don't have anything to do with the finances in your home. No, wrong. That's where you're wrong. Back to submit to God. We sit down and we listen together and we say, God, what's the direction? Uh, how do you want us to work our finances? How much do you want us to give to the church? How much do you want to give to the building program? How do you want us to spend our, our, our money? How's our budget going to be? And we listen together and we get it straight from him. He is the head of the home. Do you get it? And then I submit to her strengths and she submits to my strengths. And it works really well. Uh, sometimes, uh, one of the things she's very good at relationally, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but she's, she's happy and she's relational. So I'll phone her and I'll say, you know what? Um, I'm about to preach a message that's really tough and I'm going to make them miserable. So go in the lobby and make them happy for a while. <laughs> and she just flits around like a butterfly, you know. Everybody's happy. And then I get, and they come in here and they're all happy and then I can make them miserable. Complementary gifts and abilities force you to submit to each other. Why? Because you actually need each other. And submission to one another creates oneness. It's a sliding scale. It won't look the same for any other couple. It's not black and white. You can't simply say the, wife, the husband does this and the wife does that. Now this may create tidiness in your mind to say, well, the husband does this and the wife does that. It creates tidiness in your mind, but it creates a real mess in real life. It really does. You know what else factors into com complementary mutual submission? Not only gifts and abilities and talents, but here we go. Gender strengths. Gender strengths. You've got to submit to one another's gender strengths. You can see gender differences in your kids and grandkids, can't you? I mean, we've got, uh, we, you know, we got uh, 12 grandkids going on 13 or 14, 15, but... And, <laughs> and uh, at home, we've got all these toys. We've got lots of dolls. We do. And then we got some swords. We used to have real ones, but now no, we had to go to sponge because <laughs> people were getting hurt. And we got swords and cars and all kinds of stuff. And, and we go in, and when the kids come in at, at noon on Sunday, I don't say, oh, uh, girl, that way. Boy, oh, that way. Girl, that way. Boy, that way. Uh, you play with your gender-specific things. We never do that. We just have it all laying out there. And you know what the girls do? They all go and they grab the dolls. They never grab the swords. They do it once in a while and they'll, because the boys are doing something, pick it up and then they don't know what to do with it. You're supposed to kill somebody. <laughs> That's what you do with it. No, they pick up a doll. <laughs> they, <laughs> they pick up a doll and you know what they've been doing? This is the honest truth. And they've been uh, pulling up their t-shirts and sticking a doll under around and walking with this doll like this. I'm, I'm serious. And that's because all their moms look like that. <laughs> For years now, that's what they've all looked like. And so they're all having babies, and then all oh, so they'll plop one out, and then they'll nurse it. I don't know how that works. 
And the guys, on the other hand, they pay no attention to that. They don't get into the nursing. They go and they grab these swords, and they start to whack each other. <laughs> and they do. And then three of them, like uh, Austin, Cohen, and, and Asher, uh, they, they will start wrestling and fighting. And, I, and now for a while, I've seen Austin pick up Cohen, the youngest of them, and he literally heaves him across the room, and he tumbles across like this, finally lands and looks and starts to laugh. And he thinks that's funny. And the girls look at that and they go, wow, that's funny. That looks terrible. And, and, and now the women don't do this very often because they usually talk upstairs and stuff uh, together. But every once in a while they'll decide they want to watch something together. And you know what they watch? It's always the same. A home show. Home show. And I go, wow. But that's good. That's what they, make, they like watching a home show. You know what the guys are doing? They got NFL on. Kill them. Yeah. Yeah. Hit them. And one time, uh, recently, just a few weeks ago, because we have different people coming and going, coming and joining our family, and one of the guy's friends was there and watched our guys yelling, and we get red, and you can see the veins. And Christopher, you know the guy who preaches? He was yelling about how he wanted the Pittsburgh quarterback to be killed. <laughs> you know, maim him, take his legs off, you know, do something. And he was doing that at the top of his luggage. And this guy sat there, and once he, he looked and he said, and you're going to preach next weekend? <laughs> That's a guy. It's just a guy thing. They're di- they are different. Contrary to what our culture is trying to tell us, uh, they actually are different. Carol, Carol Gilligan, in her book, In a Different Voice, Uh, published by Harvard University Press in 1982, cites dozens of studies in which men tend to value independence and mastery or achievement as the route to being fulfilled. They see the world as a race, a war, a hunt. Their job is to achieve, to produce, to succeed. Women, on the other hand, were found to be more concerned with developing relationships. They see the world as a family, a nest, a place of beauty. Their job is to nurture, to care, to attach, to shelter. I've often said to Fran, you have this uncanny ability to turn a house into a home. And every time I go away by myself, like I did now with China and Vietnam, when I come back, she's changed the house. I kid you not. She changes where the furniture is. This time it was all painted. The whole top floor was painted. And she had put pictures this way and that way. And then she's just beaming when we walk in the door from the airport. And I said to her, you have this uncanny ability. I would never do that. She has always had close personal friends, no matter where we lived, and it doesn't take her long to, to get them. I have only started having real friends in the past few years, seriously. I mean, us guys, everybody's our friend. We're watching football together. I mean, what else is there? In interviews with highly successful professional women, they describe themselves in terms of relationships to others. These are highly professional women, successful, rather than as men do in terms of what they do and have achieved. Girls are like chatty ends. When Fran was very little, she was offered a dollar if she would be quiet for a whole minute. And she never got the dollar. They, they communicate. Boys, on the other hand, they make... Action noise. They have small vocabularies. It's true, isn't it? Generally speaking. Again, sliding scale. And they're not all exactly like that and don't all fit that. But, you know, the center of it. They're different. God made them different. And I'm, making, I'm getting to a point with this. 
I'm trying to set something up here. In conversation, women will speak more about relational things going on at work, and men will speak about how they moved a step closer in achieving another goal in the organization. So here's the warning. Don't straitjacket your marriage. Some say men should initiate and women respond. I've, I've heard that more and more of late. Well, I guess men are the initiators and women are the respond, uh, responders. Careful with that. Really careful with that. Husbands will initiate out of their strengths and wives will initiate out of their strengths. That's just the way it is. And because I am a man, achieving is a very big deal for me. It always has been. Just ask Fran. I've always got to achieve and, 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 and get another mountain. Constantly. But God made me like that. And because of that, I have initiated most of the matters, and many men are like this, have initiated most of the matters that have, ha- have to do with the direction of the family. I initiated moves to Calgary, to Wa- Kitchener-Waterloo, to Woodstock, to Steinbeck. They were all determined by vocational goals that I was trying to achieve, and Fran submitted to that. However, though I initiated it, I always included and waited for her as we submitted it to the Lord in prayer together so that in the end we always made the decision together and it didn't matter who initiated it. True? She initiates a lot of things on her side and I initiate a lot of things on my side, but we always decide them together under the Lordship of Christ as we listen together. He is the head. True? He rules our home and our marriage. Thank God for that. We were uh, listening uh, uh, quite a number of years ago. Our schedules were just whacked, and they get that way uh, sometimes, and probably yours does too, but it was out of control on the family side, on my side, on the work side. I had to do something, and we had a gift certificate to in at the Forks. So we went there over there in the morning. We sat down right after breakfast, and we sat down for two, two and a half, maybe three hours. I don't know exactly. And we prayed, and we submitted to the Lord and said, our schedules are out of control. Our lives are out of control. They've, they've just, there's too much happening. How are we going to sort some of this out? And out of that, God gave her a vision as we listened together, and we call it the big house, little house. He gave her a picture of a little house and a big house and said, Ray has to focus more on the big house, and Fran, I want you focusing more on the little house. Big house, church, little house, big family, church family, little family. And I want you taking care of more of that. And so we adjusted some things in our schedules based on what he was showing us. And we asked him specifically. And that's how we do it. When there's a relationship, uh, relational issue in the family, if at all possible, I submit to Fran's gender relational strengths to resolve it. Because she's so good at it. She's so good at handling the nitty-gritties of disagreement and stuff. She has got wisdom and stuff. I use her at work like that uh, as well. That's that relational side. So I submit and listen very carefully to what she says. Now, then sometimes if we disagree, and she was right about the, ch- uh, the teenager, remember, before? If we disagree, then we, take, we submit it to the Lord, and we say, Lord, what do you say about this? So you see, suddenly you don't have to worry about who's in charge, who's not in charge, who's initiating, who's not initiating, who should be doing this part, who should be doing the other part. You submit to each other's strengths and complement one each other, and it's going to look a little different in each family. 
Some guys are so proud because they, they, uh, they cook at home. Well, if you come to my home, I don't cook. And there's a very good reason. <laughs> my wife won't let me. And I'm glad she doesn't. She's very good at it, and she won't let me do it. But it's because of the different strengths and weaknesses and, different, and interests and everything. So my, ours looks like that, and I might go to yours, and it looks a little different. But as long as you are complementing each other under the lordship of Christ, it doesn't matter. It's going to look a little different in each case. Uh, it's very interesting. Today, she called me. I told you earlier, I alluded to this. She called me, and uh, I was... I was getting ready for the service, and all the phone rings, and it's Fran. She's really excited. And uh, there's something that we've been working. <clears throat> it has to do more with on the little house side. And uh, it's something, a, a, a thought that I had initiated and asked her about some, a couple of years ago. I, I, I began to bring that up. And by the way, you can sometimes initiate in the area of the other person's strength by bringing it up, and then they land up carrying it out. And she sometimes does that with me, and sometimes I do that with her. In this case, I initiated something, but then I dropped it in her hat. It was sort of in her court. She phones me this morning, and she said, we're trying to get God's will, and we'll, we'll pray more on the plane tomorrow. But she said, you won't believe what happened this morning. She said, the last few days I've been saying, God, if you want us to do this, then I just, we just want what you want. If you don't want us to do it, no problem. If you want us to do it, just you know, be like the cloud in the desert that uh, when you led the Israelites, just show us clearly by raising the cloud and moving forward, and then we'll, we'll know. That's what she prayed over the last couple of days. Today, she's in her devotions, and she's reading out of Numbers, and she comes to a passage which says this. Listen to this. On the 20th day of the second month... The cloud rose. Do you know what's today? The 20th day of the second month. And this thing that we were wondering about, God spoke to her just that clearly. And then she phoned me. And I'm going, in fact, we were talking about it right here on the front row as you guys were worshiping. I said, this was amazing. Yeah, she said, I really sense God speaking. I, th I said, I think you're right. And I, I think you're right on this one. And then she said to me, she said, but I still think we better pray together tomorrow on a plane yet. You see, I'm just showing you how, how, how this thing works back and forth. And it works. And then you don't have to, you, you will gain oneness in your marriage. And you will, you will find fulfillment in your marriage out of your strengths because you will be able to operate it out of your strengths and not a straitjacket-defined parameter of what the culture or the church says you must and must not do. So you have oneness, you have fulfillment, and together you will be able to advance the kingdom for the purpose that he called you to rule over. And it'll be unlike anything you've experienced. My time is gone, so you've got to come back next week for, this, for part two. But let's pray. God, whew, it's not as complicated as we thought. <laughs> it's not as complicated and messy as the culture said. It's not even as complicated and as messy as churches have told us. When we look at your word, <laughs> it's actually quite simple. And we listen to your Holy Spirit. 
give us understanding of your word. We just go, that's it. And so God, help us to grow our marriages based on these principles of submission to you for direction in our lives and submission to the strengths of that significant spouse you've put in our lives. We want to thank you for our husbands. We want to thank you for our wives. And God, we want you to build the best, greatest marriages in this church and in this region ever. To be a light that speaks of the glory of God and that together we can advance kingdom through our strengths and not through resistance in the battle of the sexes. So we want to thank you for what you're doing and what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.